0: If you would have a seat. If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. If you don't have a copy, uh, on page 8 of the Bible, there in the pew rack, you can find that. And while you're turning there, I just want to say thank you to those of you that prayed for us and texted words of encouragement and all last weekend while. Uh, we were away at uh, our oldest Elizabeth's wedding. I had a great weekend, a beautiful ceremony, a beautiful wedding. And so thank you for just uh, your encouragement and your prayers uh, in that. Genesis chapter 9. Um, as we continue our study through G- Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and then a little bit of chapter 12 as we conclude in, in the next couple of weeks, Genesis 9 looks a lot like, in part, in, a, in, in certain respects, to chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's a record of a new beginning, a second chance that God gives to humanity. And he, indeed, is a God of second chances. And not just a second chance, but third and fourth and, and so on. He's a God who is gracious to us, often overwhelming us with grace and mercy time and time Again, And we see that. We see in these first 17 verses, and we're going to get into that here in just a moment, um, God outlining this chance he gives to humanity to begin again following the flood. Just rem- re- as a reminder, remember, after the flood, there were only eight human beings left on planet Earth. Okay, uh, God, in his uh, judgment against our sin and our wickedness and our rebellion, wiped out all of living creation with the exception of eight people. And so he we see that God begins to do something new again. We see God establishing a new covenant. He had He had issued a covenant with Adam, and now we see a covenant with Noah. We see new evidence of God's grace, and we'll look in more detail at that. We see The institution of of civil accountability, what would become civil government, man governing ourselves and holding each other accountable uh, to the laws of society. We see man falling into sin, and then we see the consequences. And so we're reminded of just the nature of man and, and really what is deep within our hearts and we're going to see that also this morning. So if you have your notes there on the back of your bullet, and if you want to follow along with me, here's the first kind of big headline we're going to look at. God renews his mandate with man." Look, read with me verses one through four of Genesis chapter nine. God's word says, "God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply." and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with the with its life blood in it. And so God says, Noah, I want to bless you. I I want to invoke my divine favor in your life. And so God shows this favor to Noah and his family, and he blesses them. And how does he do so? By kind of modifying that original covenant that he made with Adam. Let me just remind you, in chapter 1, verse 28, here's what we read of God's instructions to Adam and Eve. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so God, again, he modifies that language and tells Noah and his family to do the very same thing. In, in, in and what, what does God do here? God blesses marriage and family. Unless you've been living in a cave or hiding under a rock, you you understand this. We are living in a culture, we're living in a day and age that continues to attack and ostracize and demean marriage and family. But God blesses marriage and family. God honors the institution of one man and one woman coming together in a covenant relationship in raising a family. Let me just share with you some verses of Scripture that remind us of that truth. In Proverbs 18 and verse 22, listen carefully. A man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And you and I could say it the, uh, the, uh, the exact opposite way. A woman who finds a husband finds a good thing. Listen, when, you, when, when God brings you to a, to a man or a woman whom you fall in love with and he, whom you're ready to, to spend the rest of your life with, that is a good thing. That is a blessing from the Lord. In Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19, listen to what he says to us. He says, let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving dear, graceful doe, let her breast always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. God blesses The marriage, God blesses the offspring from a marriage. Listen to Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. And so all of Scripture, from beginning to end, we see how God blesses and how God honors the marriage relationship of a a man and a woman, how God honors and blesses the family um, from that relationship. And we see here in verse 1 that God's blessing Noah and God's encouraging Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives to to multiply, to to fill the earth. But then we keep going. Look what we see in verse 2. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. Now, this is interesting because prior to the flood, there was this, this incredible harmony between man and the animal kingdom. So much so, remember what we read two weeks ago, that when God began to... To, to, to fill the ark, what did he do? He brought the animals to Noah, right? There was no animosity between man and the animal kingdom. After the flood, that wouldn't be the case. After the flood, the animal kingdom will live in fear of humanity. And how do we know this is true? Well, this afternoon or sometime this week, you have some time off, just walk out in the woods and watch what happens. Animals flee from you, don't they? They don't naturally come to you. Those of you who are deer hunters, wouldn't it be nice if if the deer just found their way to you? But what do they do when they hear you? They, They run. What do squirrels do? They run. What do birds do when you come across them in an open field? They fly away. And so following the flood, there's this natural animosity and fear between the animal kingdom and humanity. It wasn't like that before. But then God goes even further. Look what he says here. In verse 3, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. Prior to the flood, people only ate fruits and vegetables. Following the flood, God says, I want you to eat meat as well. And so the provision of food from the animal kingdom is just another evidence of God's grace and God's blessing and God's provision for mankind. But he does do this. God does issue one prohibition related to this that would test man's obedience. Look what he says here in verse 4. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Why is that? God wants you to drain the blood. Why, Why is that? Because the blood is sacred. Throughout Scripture, the life of the flesh is in the blood. The flesh was given for meat, but the blood would be given For sacrifice, listen carefully to this passage from Leviticus chapter 17, beginning in verse 10. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who eats any blood, I will turn against that person who eats the blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you and no alien who resides among you may eat blood. Any Israelite or alien residing among them who hunts down a wild animal or bird that may be eaten must drain its blood and cover it with dirt, since the life of every creature is its blood. I have told the Israelites, you are not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of, the, because the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it must be cut off. Now, this is in a bigger picture as God is establishing the sacrificial system. And what God is trying to show to the Hebrew people is that that there is great significance in the shed blood of that animal. In that blood is the life of the animal. And that blood would be accepted as a, a substitutionary death, as an atoning sacrifice for your sin. And so treat it as such. And so we see how God renews his mandate with man. Look with me beginning in verse 5. I want you to see how God establishes civil accountability for man. Look what he says here. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood... By humans, his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. God has told us how precious the lifeblood of those animals are, but he goes a step further to talk to us of how precious the life of humanity is. In chapter 6, verse 11, we read a few weeks ago that the wickedness and the corruption and the violence and, and the rebellion of man had become so great that God decided that he would bring a flood to wipe every living thing off of the earth. And in part to help prevent this kind of violence and this kind of rebellion and this kind of uh, civil animosity, he's going to introduce to us this whole idea of civil accountability that would later become civil government. And notice what he says here, that, that any person that, that takes the life of another human being willfully and deliberately will be held accountable to God. And how will he be held accountable? By those human representatives and their established authority. God establishes for us here in Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6, this whole idea of capital punishment. And and let me just say it. It's not a means of a deterrent. It's not a means of vengeance but instead one of justice. Why? Look what he says there in verse 6. For man is made in the image of God. And so when you and I take the life of another human being, the innocent life of another human being, we are literally attacking God himself. We are attacking one made in the image and likeness of God. That's why we're opposed to murder. That's why murder bothers us. It's the same logic why, as Christians, you and I are opposed to abortion. Why? It's the taking of an innocent life made in the image and likeness of God. They parallel one another. And God says we are not to take the life of an innocent human being. And remember, the emphasis in this on capital punishment is not on, justi- uh, not on vengeance, but instead on justice. And so this text is the precursor for when God will establish civil government, when God will establish authorities that the Bible says exists for our good to make sure that justice is carried out fairly and equitably to all. Let me just read to you from Romans chapter 13 where we get into a little more detail as to this whole principle. Listen to what we read in Romans 13 beginning in verse 1. Let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval." For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. And here's the principle. God has given us this whole idea of government to, to lead us and to protect us and to cre- keep us from chaos and anarchy. Now, if there is an occasion when the government has gone crazy and nuts, like uh, Hitler and his uh, administration and others, then we we stand against that, obviously. But in generally speaking, God has given us that whole institution of human government for our good and for the good of society, all right? Let's keep going. Look with me beginning in verse 8 we see that God confirms his covenant with man. Read with me this text. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I've placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds... I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures on earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. When we talk about God's covenant, the word covenant, what, what does that word mean? What does that language point to? Here, here's a simple definition I want to share with you. A clear statement of God's purposes and intentions expressed in terms that bind God by solemn oath to accomplish what he has promised. Let me, let me just share, share that again. A covenant is a clear statement of God's purposes and intentions expressed in terms that bind God by solemn oath to accomplish what he has promised. And so God gives a covenant. He gave a covenant to Adam. He's given a covenant to Noah. We'll see some other covenants in Scripture. God's given a covenant to Noah, and he's made a promise that never again will God destroy all living beings through the flood. And what is the sign of that covenant? It is a rainbow. So even today when you and I see a rainbow in the sky, we ought to be reminded of God's covenant with Noah that he'll no longer, that he would never again destroy all living creatures through the flood. God obligates himself to this promise and the sign of that obligation, the sign of that promise is the rainbow in the sky. It's an expression of God's grace. A rainbow and a reminder of God's grace and of God's patience and of God's mercy with us. Let's keep going. Look with me beginning in verse 18. I want you to see this, that God reminds us that sin is a reality and that it has consequences. Something we don't ever need to forget about. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Noah and his family leave the ark and they enter this brave new world to begin again, to start over. God removed all of the ungodly of society through the flood and he rescued these eight godly people. And yet, this verse, these verses remind us of the sin nature that exists in all of us the sin nature that existed in Noah and his family prior to the flood, the sin nature that exists. Existed in all of humanity prior to the flood. And here we see that this sin nature still exists even in Noah and his family after the flood. Now you and I would think, you know, after witnessing God's judgment on our sin and our rebellion firsthand, that, that, they, would, that they would leave the ark and they would walk incredibly close to the Lord. And, and they would be diligent and faithful to obey the Lord to avoid temptation and sin. However, we we see here what Jeremiah the prophet would tell us hundreds of years later, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, that we are inherently a sinful people. Listen carefully to me. We live in a world that wants to try to convince us that we are inherently good people. Friends, the Bible says the exact opposite. We're inherently sinful people. (laughs) We're inherently selfish people. We're inherently envious and greedy people. We are not inherently good people. We are not. That's why we need a Savior. And we're reminded in this language of verses 18 through 28 just how wicked and depraved that we can be. Notice what happens to Noah. He he, he plants a vineyard, he drinks some of the wine, and he becomes drunk, and he's laid out, unconscious, naked in front of his whole family. (laughs) There's nothing good in that story. There's nothing you and I need to say, I want to do that, right? And I want to chase a rabbit for just a moment if I can here. I, I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from Proverbs chapter 23. And I want you to listen carefully to this. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflicts? Who has complaints? Who has wounds for no reason? Who has red eyes? The psalmist asks those rhetorical questions. Then look what he says beginning in verse 30 of Proverbs 23. Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine... Don't gaze at wine because it is red, because it gleams in the cup and go down, goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and you will say absurd things. You'll be like someone sleeping out at sea or lying down on the top of a ship's mast. They struck me, but I feel no pain. They beat me, but I didn't know it. When will I wake up? I'll look. For another drink. I want you to listen carefully to me, church. The God who created you in his image and his likeness, the God who has a wonderful and an awesome and incredible plan for your life, the God who knows more about you than you know about yourself, do you realize that there is not one place in Scripture minus one exception I'll tell you about? There is not a single place in Scripture where the God who created you has one positive thing to say about the consumption of alcohol. Not one place. Not one single time. With the exception of 1 Timothy, chapter 5, where Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, because you have GI issues and you're sick at your stomach often, drink a little bit of wine. They didn't have Pepto-Bismol, and they didn't have Imodium AD, and they didn't have Prilosec. And so whatever GI issues Timothy was dealing with, a little fermented drink would help. But do you realize, with that exception, there is never an instance in all of Scripture where God's Word has anything to say positive about the consumption of alcohol. Why do I share that with you? Because as your pastor, I would encourage you, the wisest and the safest decision for you to make for you and your family is to avoid it altogether. Lest you end up naked and unconscious like Noah. And I don't think you want to do that. There is nothing inherently good about alcohol. Nothing. 25 years of ministry... And I've sat in offices with individuals and families whose lives and careers and marriages have been ruined because of alcohol. Why doesn't God have anything good to say about it? Because there's nothing good about it. So there's my my encouragement to you. You take that and do whatever you would like to do with it. All right? So let me get back to the text. Here is what we see: that uh, anyone can sin. Right in Genesis six verse nine, we are taught that Noah was a godly man; he was a righteous man; he was a man who walked closely with God. And yet, we see Noah falling deep into sin and shame and embarrassment. And so, you and I need to be reminded of this: that that no matter how close we may be with the Lord, temptation is a reality in all of our lives. Listen. The adversary works every hour of every day in your life and my life to tempt us to sin, to tempt us to do that which is contrary to the ways of God. And you and I don't need to lose sight of that. We, we need to be conscious and aware of the temptation that the adversary brings to our heart and our mind every day. And so anyone can fall. But let me take it a step further. Everyone does sin. Sin. Listen, as, we, as we've studied through Genesis now through chapter 9, he, he, here's what we see in every chapter. We see man's sin, and we see God's grace. We saw Adam and Eve sin, and we saw God's grace. We saw Cain sin, and we see God's grace. We saw the descendants of, uh, of Seth sin, and we see God's grace. We see all of society who had sinned and rebelled against God, and we see his grace in the ark and rescuing Noah and his family. You and I are all guilty of this very same thing. Look with me on the screen. Look with me beginning in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10 through 12, and then verse 23. Look what we read. As it is written, there is no one righteous. How does that make you feel today? Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All Alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If Noah, a preacher of righteousness, one of God's Hall of Fame of Faith members from Hebrews 11, if he can fall into this gross and embarrassing sin, listen, you and I need to be on guard that that, that if, if it can happen to him, it, it can happen to us. That we're all in danger of the very same thing if, if we don't walk circumspectly and carefully. But then we're also reminded that sin always has consequences. And unfortunately, Canaan would suffer the consequences of his dad's sin, Ham, uh, and how he embarrassed his father and made fun of him instead of trying to help. And so we see these consequences. It says Canaan is cursed. He would be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. It reminds us of this biblical principle. Look with me in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. Listen to what God's Word says. The Lord passed in front of him, this is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Praise the Lord that he's faithful to forgive. But notice what he goes on to say, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. What, what is the principle you and I need to take away? It's this. Are you ready? Sin always affects more than just self. The consequence of sin always affects others, even the innocent, even those who weren't a part of the sin. If you and I willfully and deliberately choose to sin, choose to wander from the ways of God and the Word of God, we are inviting the consequences of that sin into our lives and the lives of those around us. Now, now remember, consequences are not synonymous with punishment. It's two different things, okay? We find forgiveness of sin, okay, the removal of that punishment, but that doesn't mean sin doesn't have consequences. God's Word never says, I'm going to remove consequences. He says, I'm going to remove punishment. It's two different things. Let let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's suppose that tomorrow morning I wake up and I've lost, lost my mind, which there's a high probability of that, trust me, okay? And I go to a bank. I go down here to Synovus Bank. I take my pistol in there, and I point it at a teller's face, and I say, give me all the money in your drawer. And he or she gives me all the money in that drawer, and I leave that bank. And then sometime later, an FBI agent finds me and arrests me for bank robbery. My wife and children aren't guilty of that sin, but you know what? They're going to suffer the consequences of that sin. Their husband's going to lose his job. He's going to be thrown in jail, okay? The income that I earn is lost. Going to lose your home, maybe your car, who knows what else? That's the principle we see here in Genesis 9 with, Noah's, with Ham's sin against his father Noah the consequences of that just kind of ease out through, through everybody else, even those who weren't a part of it. That's why sin is so grave, and that's why we have to be so careful to walk close to the Lord and not to stray from His way and His words because it never affects just me. It affects those around me. So, in Genesis 9, we see this new covenant that God gives to Noah. This promise through the rain that, that we see in the rainbow that God will never again destroy humanity. God will continue to establish covenants with his people. Uh, we'll see a covenant with Abraham in just a couple of weeks. Later, we'll see a covenant with Moses and then with David and all of these covenants are precursors to his final covenant that he would establish through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have time today to go into the great detail, but if you, if you were to study Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 sp- particularly, you'll see the details of this new covenant that God establishes through Jesus Christ and how it is superior to all of his other covenants, how it is the perfection and the fulfillment of Of all His covenant covenants, here's what I want to read from Hebrews chapter nine this morning. Let me just read a few verses that point out some of the key aspects of this new covenant that God has with us through Christ. Beginning in verse 11, listen carefully. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of of the good things that had come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained, watch this, eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We continue on, and here's what we read, that he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why did he do this in verse 28? But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for. So in Christ, we have this perfect covenant whereby he died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to bring us eternal redemption, in whom we have salvation. It is the perfection of all the other covenants God would establish with his people. A covenant that offers us forgiveness of sin and eternal life, all right? So look with me here in your notes. What what do I want you to take away from Genesis chapter 9 today? Here it is. You ready? God honors and blesses marriage and family. God honors and blesses marriage and family. Marriage is a wonderful and a good thing. Family is a wonderful and a good thing. Number two. Man is responsible to hold one another accountable to civil law. We have a responsibility to govern one another and to make laws and to to hold us accountable to those laws, to avoid chaos and anarchy. Number three, God's covenant with man is perfected and fulfilled in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And then number four, Sin and temptation are daily realities. We can, in Christ, we can, in Christ, be victorious over. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the opportunity we've had today to sing your praises, to study your word, and to encourage one another through fellowship and friendship. Lord God, I ask and pray that... uh, you would continue to move and work among us for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father God, for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for redeeming us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.